Welcome to another episode of the Examined Athlete. My name is Clay Reichenbach. I'm going to try to keep this intro short today because we have a lot to get to and I want to let our guests do the talking, but I just have to tell you a little bit about this incredibly inspiring story we have today. Our guest today is James Casey. James is a collegiate All-American football player. He is a seven-year NFL veteran. He spent time with the Houston Texans, the Philadelphia Eagles, and the Denver Broncos. And he's currently the tight ends coach for the Cincinnati Bengals, a team that he helped take to the Super Bowl last year in L.A. James's story is heartbreaking at times, without question, but ultimately This is a story of perseverance and belief and willpower and success in the end. James grew up in poverty, living in a trailer in small town Texas. He then faced the unimaginable tragedy of losing a parent as a child when the trailer caught fire, killing his mother and destroying all of their possessions. But with the help of his community and an incredible work ethic, James found his way forward. That was not without facing additional obstacles, though. His athletic journey took him through a failed attempt at professional baseball before returning to college at the age of 24, where he became an All-American and was eventually drafted into the NFL. James, thank you so much for sharing your story the way you did. It was an absolute honor and a privilege to have you on and to be a part of this conversation, witness your story, and learn from your story in the end. Ladies and gentlemen, the powerful James Casey. I saw that I've listened a little bit of the ultra marathoner guy you had on. I listened to the whole thing just a little bit, the first part, but that, that just, I just don't understand it. I mean, I understand that they must enjoy that and it, they get some kind of endorphins from running but to me it's like that is the worst possible thing i can think of it's just what, running towards for a long the time. end of it i don't know if you got to this part but he talked about how he frames suffering in his mind which i thought was really interesting and his quote is it's learning how to suffer just enough so too much suffering is a problem too little suffering i thought that was really interesting and i thought it was a really cool metaphor for life because i really believe the word suffering is, it depends on how you mean it, but suffering is important. You know, struggling is important. He has a really cool way to think about that. It's impressive that he thinks about that. Like the reason why he does those things and the suffering part of it. And that's a hard part about, you know, I didn't grow up with hardly any money. And now my kids were growing up, you know, decent amount of money, not struggling with anything. So I think that's a part of me being as driven as I am is because I didn't grow up with anything. I'm not going to just artificially make my kids like not have money and suffer, but I need to find ways to like get them to understand the importance of like, I the, think about that the all the time. And the, I got two boys. So I obviously are trying to instill the toughness into them just with how I raise them, how I talk to them. And you know, it's not okay to be mediocre or normal. And you want to be positive to the kids and encourage them, but you also don't want to just allow them to think it's okay for certain things that they do. Like when they pretend to be hurt or trying to create them to be tough, tough guys. But, I don't have the natural struggles, but I've always thought if I had a girl, a girl, it would be way different for me because it would almost be easier as a, as a dad for me as a girl. Cause I would not be too concerned about all that stuff. I'd just be like, Hey, you're my daughter. I love you. Like everything's great. I'll take care of you forever. Don't worry about it. But if I actually had a daughter, it'd probably be different. Cause well, I, I have to be two girls successful. and 
I would li- I had two brothers. I'd be lying to you if I told you years ago I'd have two girls, but I actually do try to it, this may sound artificial, but like expose them to like powerful females. Like if we're going to watch a cartoon, I like watch Mulan or watch Ray from Star Wars to see like wo- this idea of warrior princess is big in my head. Like you're a princess, but you're a warrior princess. So I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I want them to know like you can be a mom and pretty and pink or you can be powerful and do whatever you want so i don't know if that's right or wrong but that's no. my strategy yeah i love i mean i love my wife is like that she's like a as bad as alpha as a female as you can get like and i'm an alpha male like really aggressive like really introverted but i like i i have a certain intensity to me and my wife's like that she's real like intense she's harder on the kids than i am my boys it, it is unique like it stand it stands out when a female like like my wife is like real assertive and those women that are like that they really stand out and so if i had a girl i would try to probably create that a little bit but i'd also be at the end back of my mind saying okay you're my daughter i'm taking care of you and you won't really have to worry about anything but the boys i'm they gonna have to have their own family to take care of and provide for and that's why i got that land in atlanta too outside atlanta is just try to create memories as a kid and try to have like this is our place this is and our put home. them to work too yeah and they get out yeah like we I just came back. We were out there three days with my youngest. He's eight, about to be nine. And we don't even have a house out there right now. It's just land. So we're just, we were in a tent. I mean, it was hot. Coming from Cincinnati, it's, it's humid there, but it's not like this. I haven't been in it's Texas for a little right now. It is unbelievable out there, but it is like a part of trying to create those struggles. And I the bet it's their favorite thing. So we used to do something called Dove Camp every Labor Day weekend. My family did it for over 60 years where it's tents, bathing in the river, all those things. Yes. And I looked forward to Dove Camp more than Christmas. I will say that once I, once I got into my, like, you know, I was 20 years old. I was like, all right, like after four days of that, you're just filthy and got ticks on you and stuff like that. But, but it was, I mean, it's, I bet it's a powerful experience for your boys. And you probably understand as you're older now that, you know, probably what your parents were trying to create that the little bit of a struggle, the, and then more appreciation for everything else. Even the three days I was out there just on the in the tent and walking around in the heat and now that I'm in this air conditioning, you appreciate just being in a bed, being inside and even the little things a little bit more. Well, let's get into it, James, man. I I am honored to have you be here and to to share the story you're gonna share. I think your story is it's incredible. It's interesting. It's all those things, but I think it's one of those stories, James, that's helpful. I think there's people that listen to this that are young and will be on parallel paths. Maybe not exactly like yours, man, but I just, just thank you for being here. I appreciate you, you know, inviting me to come on and we were speaking before, but you get these emails from Rice and it showed your face and it said examine athlete podcast. And I was like, that is right up my alley because I'm coaching now and played sports and was an athlete my whole life. And getting into the bigger, the deeper aspects that the people that maybe not didn't play professional athletes, but there's still a lot of great things that you can learn from the type of mindset that people have. And now that I coach the things that I try to talk to my players about. And so I, I, and I reached out to you on Instagram and just said, Hey, I don't know what I said, but I just was appreciating what you do. And I still do. And I really appreciate you inviting me on. Let me talk a little. Well, you're a bit of a rice legend. I know more about you than you know about me. So we're going to get into some of that, that lore as we go through how you ended up at rice. But you mentioned coaching before we do that. How was it coaching in a Super Bowl last year was other than the end result. I mean, it feels like one of the bigger Super Bowls in the last decade, maybe because it was in LA. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, it sucks that we didn't pull it off and didn't win it, but it was the whole journey of this year. I mean, it was extremely special because we weren't very good the last two years in Cincinnati and then 
you know, we always have high expectations every season, but, you know, just the way our season went and the guys that we have in our locker room and coaching staff, like, able to be around some amazing people. And, you know, we, we go on the road and beat the Titans and then we go beat Kansas City in the AFC Championship and then we go to the Super Bowl and it was just it's one of those things you always dream about. You know, you grow up. I think, did you play in the, the College World Series? I kept us out while I was there. I like to tell people <laughs> yeah, right. we had great teams, but yeah, I, we didn't make it while I was there. But it's just, you know, you dream about it forever, and you you always think about. I wish I could have done it as a player. You know, got to the Super Bowl, of course, but being as a coach and being there and just understanding how big of a moment that is, and just really just taking time to enjoy the moment. And and the best part about it is just having all the family come down. All my all my family was able to come and watch and experience that, and my kids. It's one of those unforgettable things, and now you're you're always using things as motivation, and now it's, we didn't win it, so now I'm even more motivated to get back there and win it, and hopefully our team is like that as well. You know, I'm curious. Can you tell a difference in the locker room or on the field between like a Super Bowl caliber team and a 10 or 12 win playoff team? Or is, it, is there so much luck involved at that level and the kind of you're splitting hairs, or is there a difference in the locker room between – you know, a 12-win Texan team you played on that made it to the division playoffs and a team that makes the Super Bowl? I don't have a ton of experience, but in my brief experience as a coach and player, like, I think you can. You just – and it's it's just the people. You can just get a sense of the type of people you have in your locker room. Coaching philosophy-wise, like, and I'm big and just – you got to get the right people and then you got to get them with the right mindset. And you can just see it with our team this last year. Like, from the beginning, we the first two years we weren't very good. Last year we were really good. To me, it was really we had we made some great uh, signings and free agency and the drafts, and we always have Joe Burrow, which is everything you want as a player. That's helpful. Yeah, he would, you know, he'd be a great guy for you to interview because he's uh, he is the guy. You know, like mindset wise, intangibles, confidence, like never too big for the moment. Always, you know, even killed, and you always feel like you can win with him. But we had a lot of other guys like that that were just you know I just got a good sense that we have like just a great locker room, and they were going to find a way to win games there's just determination and long answer but yes i do think that you can tell the difference when you're when you go through practices and locker rooms and you hear your players do interviews and you can kind of just get a sense that we got the right guys so we got a chance well i'll say this joe burrow has an open invitation anytime so he can come on anytime joe is just you know because an athlete podcast but like when you're around a guy like that the confidence that he walks around with you know there's no insecurity with him at all like he's he holds guys accountable. He's got a killer instinct. You know, he, he wants to win. He wants to, he wants everybody to be good. Like just those type of people that, that are, I played with Peyton Manning for a little bit too in Denver. You can get a sense when you're around those type of people that how confident they are and how hard they work and how disciplined they are. And just, they're just different types of people. Confidence is huge. I think Peyton's more of that quiet confidence. Joe's more of that loud confidence, but I, however you get it, I, I, I call it internal arrogance. It's like you have to, as an athlete or it's any high level performer, have something inside you that believes you're better than the man across you. If you don't, I don't think you have much of a chance. The, the difference between like confidence and arrogance is just an arrogant person like says the thing that the confident person is thinking all the time. You got to you got to believe you're better than everybody else. You know you got to have that obsession with what 100%. you're doing to be great. All the greats like you know Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, they're all just extremely confident, extremely driven. Hold it, hold everybody accountable. They just have a different different gear that they go to. We're going to get into to more of that, James. Let's go back, though. Let's start with your background. Tell us where you grew up. Tell us about your family growing up. I grew up in Hazel, Texas, um, outside of Fort Worth. I grew up with hardly any money at all. I mean, like, really not a lot of money. So I come from, you know, not a great background. 
you know, I had, you know, good family, but you're living in a trailer. There's roaches everywhere. I think that's a big reason why, like, I am motivated. It's just, I, and a lot of it to me, like, just growing up in that situation, just I'm not a victim or anything, or I don't want anybody, I would never want anybody feeling sorry for me, but just growing up with not a lot of money, you always just feel like you're, you don't want to invite people over because you know you don't have a nice place. You, you're not going to nice places. You see people at school that are, have nice clothes on. You don't. You just, you always just feel a little ashamed and just, in my mind, I was just like, as a kid growing up, I was just watching all that and I was like, really learning things that I, that I don't want. You were aware of it as a kid that there were others that had more than you and. Oh, yeah. What, just like every kid. I, I, from preparing, was your dad in your life? Did your, was your dad involved? He was. My dad was more of a, you know, he was nothing bad, you know, like never spanked me or did anything, but he just was more of a hippie type of guy. Like he was not really the traditional dad, as you would say, you know, he wasn't, you know, nothing bad, but he he would drink beer, you know, every day and, and smoke and, but it wasn't, I mean, I never looked at it as a negative. I love my dad and he was great to me. I'm very appreciative of, he passed away, you know, after my rookie year, but he was still a, a man, you know, he's still my dad. So he was still you know, just watching him, I would see how tough he was, like little stuff. like. But he wasn't your primary caregiver, right? It was you and your mom, correct? It was my mom and my dad. We were both there. I mean, they had a, a crazy marriage and it was, you know, back and forth and, you know, fights and all that stuff. But he was always there. They would be in and out a little bit, but they were always there. Both my parents were, you know, they were not the traditional parents. Like they were both kind of, they didn't have the nine to five jobs all the time. They worked and we had... You know, we always had something, but it wasn't like we were, we had, I mean, there was times like the electricity was out and we were living in that trailer. There was times, you know, we were, you know, neither one of them had jobs, but they would still like find ways somehow to at least it'd be something, you know, even if it was just peanut butter and jelly or Vienna sausages, there was always something to eat or something. So I wasn't like living on the streets, but at times it was about as close as you can get to living on the streets, but I would still have a, I still had a house. Though. I still had a mom or dad. They were still there. They just had their way of doing things that which is, I don't know, it's hard to characterize because in my mindset now as an adult, like I'm, you know, complete opposite of that with my kids and trying to make sure I'm always there and teaching things and trying to coach them up on things. But I still don't ever look back at anything and say sad about it or I feel, you know, like I'm, I'm I can I'm, tell I'm, you're I'm appreciative glad. of the small things. There's, there's obviously it instilled something in you where you're grateful for whatever it is, small things you have. I can hear it in, in your response. Did you have siblings? Yeah, I've had two sisters and and a half brother, we've really separated. It's a lot. It's probably you know me. Some I'm just coming from that environment, and then wanting so bad to be successful and to get out of that environment. Like they were doing some things that were not good for them, and I was so driven on being. And then I had my own wife. We we were high school sweethearts, so I had my own family. You were on kids. a different path, and yeah, I was on a different path, and I was just focused on making sure I was going to be successful and knowing that some of the things they were doing was not going to be good for me. Now, they're doing well now, but we just kind of separated. And I just didn't talk to him much. You described yourself as an introvert earlier. Were you a quiet kid away from the athletic field? Were you, were you a quiet kid growing up? How would you describe yourself outside of athletics? Very introverted, very quiet, very shy as a kid. Well, I get more energy from listening to podcasts and from having one-on-one conversations like this and I don't like small talk and talking to everybody around. Like I have a couple people that I enjoy talking to and I'm always respectful and I enjoy talking to people, but it's not like my, and it's not kid, where you get energy. Way. Yeah. And it's as a kid, it was the same way. Like I was real shy. You know, there would be times people say, do, do you ever talk? And I was always just this 
trying to think of it like you know what's what's so bad about not talking like i'm not talking but what's what's wrong with that like i don't speak unless i have something to say i'm learning and listening and trying to be really good at what i'm doing but I'm i not. think the world could use more of that and now that i'm older and read a bunch of books and like i, I realized like there's a lot of power in that because i can i have the ability to like focus on things and I, I don't need to be talking to people like i don't need to be watching the tv like I have a couple of things that I enjoy and I know what I enjoy and I've thought through what my goals are and my worthwhile goals and I focus on that and I'm just like strictly, you know, in that. And I think that's a problem with a lot of people is they have, they don't really, they have so many things going on. They're talking here, doing that, doing that, doing that. Like anything, if you're going to be really good or you want to be great at something, you're going to have to be like obsessed with it. You're going to have to like do more than everybody else is at it. And so I'm, I'm really appreciative that I am so introverted because I don't, you know, I don't need to do all that stuff i can just really focus on what i want and my family and you know, a lot of the other stuff that seems like it derails some other people it doesn't even really affect me at all let's get to the athletic field as a child would you say you were naturally gifted naturally talented hand-eye coordination athleticism were you a standout from a very young young kid oh yeah yeah i was naturally talented as a kid little league football and baseball you know i was good as a kid and then i got to junior high and you know that's when kids start getting to puberty and they started passing me up all my childhood, I was, and that's really, you know, like we talked about, I grew up with not a lot of money in a bad situation, but I was always really good at sports and I was always really good at school too. That That's kind of what just kept me going and kept me motivated is just, I was good in sports. And then because I was good in sports, I had, you know, other families and coaches that would help me and give me to practices. And, but then when I got to junior high, they kind of started all passing me up in freshman year. Were, you know, people were bigger and, and I was used to being really good and I wasn't, it was like just you know, really frustrating and but then I finally hit my growth spurt and I went from five eight my freshman year to six two my sophomore year and then I started being back good again. So then then I was back my sophomore, junior, senior year. High school wise, I was back being a good athlete. But I had like a three or four year span where I wasn't that good, but I sophomore. It seems like a similar trajectory I hear you describing because people have asked me before if I was like athletically gifted and I separate hand eye coordination from athleticism. I think my athleticism came when I was like a sophomore and I was a freshman in high school, like by that point I, I went from like five, three to six, one in like a year and a half. And I could dunk a basketball though by the end of my freshman year. But like, I always had hand eye coordination. I could always throw, I could always hit you give me a ball and I can make it work. Pairing that with athleticism for me came around sophomore year. That's I was really great hand eye coordination all the way through and really athletic. I just kind of my growth, People started getting bigger and faster than yeah. me in that four or five year span. Then I finally got hit my growth spurt and got, got back to where I was, you know, tall and fast again. Then I then I was back to being good. Let's let's talk about your mother a little bit. I uh, know that your mother is a powerful figure in your life. I'm a mama's boy too. My my mother is a a prevailing force in my life to this day. So tell me about your mom, who she was, the relationship you guys shared. Yeah, my mom was, you know, she was the one that was always there, taking me to practice, taking me to games. My dad was, he was around, but he, you know, he's for what, I don't know why I didn't ever talk to him, but he never really liked going to my game. So he re didn't come around much when I was playing. So I, you know, she was always taking me to practice and <clears throat> making sure I was at the games and just sitting in the lawn chair, watching me play. So she was just the figure that was there and not like she was like super encouraging me or anything, but she was just at least there. That's the biggest, she was there. Well, I don't talk about it, but she passed away when I was a sophomore in high school. I was in biology class and a student comes in and says, you, you know, the slips they give you and it says you need to go to the office. And I'm, you know, I really didn't get in trouble a bunch. So I'm thinking what's going on. So I go to the office and I have a half brother and he was there and he just, 
at the office and he just immediately said that the trailer burned down and your mom was inside and she died. I mean, that's like a split second, like everything changed. And of course, you you know, I love my mom and she was really the only one that was around all the time in there. I'm sure, you know, there's people out there that have dealt with tragedies and bad things. And that's, I don't, I don't ever talk about it because I don't ever want anybody feeling sorry for me or, you know, I don't ever want to appear like I'm the victim or anything, but some people, I don't know who will listen to this, but there may be somebody listening to it and dealing with something similar. So my brother, my half brother tells me your mom died in a trailer fire and I'm 16 years old and just boom, just hits me and. We immediately Do you remember get in the car. what you were feeling in that moment? They call you down to the office and they tell you there's been a fire and you've lost your mom. Do you remember? I could see that going a lot of different ways. You know, do you remember your initial thoughts? Just disbelief. I just didn't believe it. I was like, you know, it's hard to process all that and like instantly you're just like, what? You know, like what do you mean? But so we immediately I had this old uh, crappy Dodge truck. So I mean, you know, he said we need to go back. So I go back to the where I lived in this trailer. And, you know, that's still smoking. The fire truck's everywhere. And we drive up and my dad's there and, and my sister's and just, we're just sitting there like, you know, what do you do now? Like I lost everything I had. I didn't have a lot, but I every clothes I had, every trophy I won as a kid, like literally the only thing I had was my backpack and I lost my mom. It, it went from disbelief and then it just went to like, you know, like you get hit with something like that. You're just like, I mean what you know what 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 am i going to do like what's the point like you just feel terrible you know like there's nothing you know nothing to do i have nothing so i was real bad for like like a week like four or five days i was just like you know what's the point of anything i've never experienced anything like that james but when i was reading about this it occurred to me that you were facing like these two monumental obstacles at once maybe more than that but one is just like what you're talking about persevering mentally figuring out how to move forward without your mother, figuring out how to grieve. And then two is figuring out how to persevere logistically. Where am I going to sleep? What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear tomorrow? Explain kind of how you slowly started taking steps forward and kind of finding your way on those two fronts. Yeah. It's just that happens. You're just, you're like, I'm, I'm really not even thinking about that. I'm just thinking about don't not have anything. Where am I going to stay? And don't have my mom and like, what am I even going to do? Like there's, you know, I'm not even, I don't even get into the logistics when I'm thinking about it. I'm just thinking like, I'm just feeling obviously terrible and sad. And I'm just, just so heartbroken and just like, and I'm also a very introverted guy and I like don't, I don't talk to a lot of people. And then I'm thinking like people are going to want to talk to me and, and I don't want to talk to anybody. Like I don't want to talk to anybody. Like, what, what are you going to say to me? You know, it was like four or five days, but then the whole community started like donating things to me. And I guess we didn't have group me back then, but they started getting money together and giving it to my dad. And, but I had people from the town, like the, the small amount of people I knew, like really it was our athletic trainer. His name's Doc and his wife, Betsy. They're my parents now. So they kind of took me in. I stayed there. So I had a place to stay and then people gave me clothes and then sorry eventually I was you know feeling like I got choices right I can just be sorry for myself 
and be walking around with my head down or I could do something in my life. Like the, the one thing that changed is when I finally thought like, okay, what would my mom want? She would want me to be successful and make something myself. So once I figured that out, I was like just really motivated to do something with myself. And I had a lot of help from everybody around me. So started going back to school and, you know, people bought me cleats and clothes and, and I was always a good athlete. So I was just jumped right back into, you know, like I think it was baseball season and had a really good baseball season and did really well in school. I, you know, I was always really good in school and just growing up in that environment, just the common sense aspect of if I want to make some myself, I need to be really good at school. I need to be smart. I need to make good grades because I can go to college and it can open doors for me. And obviously sports too. I was like, I can, if I can be really good at sports, that can open doors for me. And I was just driven to be really good at those two things. So I could maybe go out and make money and be a successful person one day. But the initial step forward was this time spent thinking about who your mom was and what she would want. And that was what allowed you to take that first step forward is going, she wouldn't want me to sit around moping. She would be saying, get your tail up and go do something. Yeah. That was like the epiphany moment. The motivating factor. Are there ways that are, I'm sorry, are there ways that that experience still affects you today? Can you see it in the way you parent or interact with one another or make decisions? Can you, point to that experience and say that still changes the way I act today. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I never talk about it, but, and nobody really talks to me about it either, which is, which is good. Cause I don't want to talk about it, you know, like, but besides like something like this, well, let me just say, yeah. I can't be more grateful for you to share it. And I can't agree with you more that I think there will be particularly young people that are on parallel paths. It may not be the exact circumstances, but not that you're ever through your journey, but you're past a lot of the tragedy. And there's going to be people that are right in the middle of it and they're going to think they're alone. And that's kind of the goal of the examined athlete is to show others, oh, those outliers, those millionaires, those athletes, those business leaders, those psychologists have had zigzagging paths. And a lot of times I think when you're in the middle of that path, you think James Casey's path was linear. Lance Berkman's path was linear. Bobby Tudor's path was linear. And that's not the case. And that's why I think these things are so important. But sorry for cutting you off there. No, exactly. Like, that's what I was so intrigued with, you know, your podcast when I first saw it and reaching out to you was just the the benefits that certain people can get with seeing people's stories and hearing the mindset of certain people. And not that I'm the end-all, be-all, but I did, was able to achieve some things and go to college and play professionally. And But, yeah, my mother's death and then the trailer burned down yeah you know of course it everything impacts everything about me like it can be taken away immediately and just hard you know like just getting hardened that that not feeling sorry for yourself but just being where no matter what happens i can overcome it like i can i can make myself successful i have a lot of like personal belief in myself that i can i can do whatever because i've been through some of the worst things and i can still be successful Absolutely. Absolutely. I've asked this question a number of times on the podcast and I always learn something from the answer. I want to know what perseverance means to you. What is perseverance to you? In my own opinion, it's outlasting everybody. It's just having the mindset to where 
I'm going to go through and understand what I need to do to be successful and think it all the way through and have a goal, a worthwhile goal of what I want to do. And then once I like coaching right now, you know, like I want to be, I've decided I want to be a coach and we may get into that, like how, why I decided to be a coach, but, and now I want to be the best coach in the world. I'm not just doing something just to be good. I want to be the best at it because if I'm doing anything, why would I not try to be the best? Once I decide that and perseverance to me is just, once I make that decision and that's what I want to do, I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to, to achieve what others don't, I'm going to do what others won't. And that's another just simple concept. Like you're going to have to do what other people won't do to be really good at something. And I always have in my, in my mind, like I am going to be more consistent than everybody else. Whatever happens, I'm going to find ways to motivate myself and to turn that into something good. And I'm going to outlast everybody. I like it. So I may not always be thriving or succeeding, but I'm going to stay in the struggle. I'm going to stay on the path. I love it. I love it. Well, again, thank you for sharing that with me. And your story's just getting started here. So yeah, we're we, gonna, we hit the big one early, which is hopefully we can get past that. Was well, there's the more setbacks yeah. too for those listening. And I want to get in. So like you said, you were a great athlete, a good baseball player, a great baseball player, a great football player. And moving into your senior year, you're then drafted by the Chicago White Sox. And I'm curious what the decision looked like to choose baseball over football. Did you have offers to go play football out of your senior year? Was it pretty clear that baseball was your path at this point? What did that look like? I didn't have offers in football, even though I was, you know, playing in the NFL. Obviously, I was, I was a good football player. But, you know, after my mother passed away, I'm just, like, hitting the ground running, like, baseball, football. And I didn't really pitch as a kid growing up. I was, a, like, a catcher, played some infield. And, but I wasn't, like, the best player in Little League Baseball or Select Baseball. And then I got into high school, and I hit that growth spurt after my freshman year and went from 5'8 to 6'2 my sophomore year. But we ran a triple option in high school football, which to this day I cannot stand it because I didn't get – you know, I could throw the ball, and, you know, we did really good on 7-on-7, seven seven, but I didn't get recruited to go to college, which it still kind of pisses me off because I've been in college and coached a little bit, and now in the NFL I'm, like, just thinking about myself back then. Like, I was really talented. Like, I was in good shape. Like – you know, I should have been recruited. The spread offense was still 10 years away for us. I think most Texas high school football in the in the 90s was three yards in a pile of dust. Yeah. And then I I got injured my senior year in high school. I was, all, I was first team all district quarterback my junior year, and we went to the playoffs. And my senior year, we were doing first game, we win big. Second game, we're winning. And I'm running like a, a quarterback sweep, triple option thing. And I'm it's like a, I don't know, 30, 40 yard gain or something. And I take a plant, and a guy hits me in the knee. It hits me right in the perfect spot in my knee, and I tear my meniscus, and my knee is like stuck. So I just can't move my knee. Long story short, but I have to get surgery like that next week. They try to repair my meniscus. This is my senior year. And they tell me I got to sit out six weeks. Now it's like six months, they tell them, or whatever. But they told me six weeks, and, of course, I didn't stay off of it the whole time. Like towards the end, I was starting to feel better. I was like, okay, I'm all right. I get back to practice finally. This is the second game of the season. I had knee surgery, repaired my cartilage. You know, there's a couple games left. I finally talk him into clearing me, and I go to practice. And halfway through practice, I'm feeling great. Halfway through practice, I take a plant, non-contact. I tear the knee again. Oh, So I had a second surgery, and this time I was just like, take the cartilage out. I don't care because I want to be able to play. And they took the cartilage out the second time, and I still ended up playing the last game of the season. Like, wow. Like when I'm talking to my, my players as a coach, and I'm like, I had two surgeries my senior year on my knee, on the same knee in one season. And still played. Is, and I still played the last this game. It's what, like a 10-game season or something? Yeah, it was 10-game like season. I had a surgery after the second game and then like in like the seventh week uh, practices and still came back like a week later and played that last game. And these are like 
And I'm just not like a, I'm talking about a real surgery, like a knee scope, you know, where they got to put the holes in there and take, you know, put me completely under. But I still played my, my last game. So I'm just, you know, when I'm coaching people or seeing other people, like I talked about being hard and like, I try to be empathetic and passionate too, but I don't have a lot of tolerance for like softness, weakness, because I've been through some things. I've, I've had to deal with some stuff and I persevered and I was tough. And like, I'm with my mother passing away and there's two knee surgeries and still playing and, and we'll get into some other stuff, but like, yeah, there's bad things that happen. I've had a lot of bad things happen to me, but I still stayed motivated and stayed and kept working. But junior year, I'm like a known, uh, unknown person though, baseball wise. Like, no, you know, I was good as a kid, but not like the best. Junior year, okay, I'm on varsity now as a, as a junior. I'm like, okay, let's let's go. And we have a, a baseball scrimmage against Flower Mound before the season starts, and I gave up nine runs, I think, in the first inning as a pitcher. Like, just got destroyed. So the coaches were like, okay, you know, I'm like the whatever. On high school, I'm like the third, fourth pitcher or whatever my junior year. So we go into our first tournament, and they throw our other two guys that were pitchers, and then I'm fi- I finally get a chance to play because it's a tournament. You know, you got to have a bunch of pitchers. So I finally get a chance to pitch. And then I saw so my first game as a varsity pitcher, though, very first game ever, just coming off of that really terrible scrimmage, I throw a no-hitter. Like oh, wow. I, I throw a no-hitter, and I don't give up a run for like 51 innings. I'm, and I never even pitched before. I have no training whatsoever in pitching besides just watching people. And, you know, I see how to throw a curveball from watching people. So I had a really good curveball. I was throwing hard. I didn't know how hard I was throwing, but I was throwing pretty hard. But I finally get clocked one time, like towards the end of the season, my junior year. Nobody was there. There was like one college recruiter there from like, I think it was UT Pan America. He was up there in like the last inning clocking me and he told the coach because he clocked me at 91 like in the last inning he didn't show up till later so we're on the bus going home and the coach calls me up and says hey just letting you know that there was a college guy that clocked you at 91 he's like it's, it's going to be a little different now for you so you're going to get some attention so once that happened then it was like okay colleges started contacting me and so then going into my senior year let me break in for a bit yeah, and then we'll please. come we'll come back <laughs> to your senior year because you said something you went and worked with your dad and we don't have to delay here for long or linger here for long but my understanding is after your mother passed away you were living with different families crashing on different couches but your dad was still in the picture you work with him explain kind of how that works so you were living with your your girlfriend and the trainer and friends and how did, how did that work explain that to me yeah this when i was working with him and this was after my freshman year so this was before my mother passed away so okay. we were still okay and so he would he was a roofer at the time he did well after your mother passed away explain explain that situation too because i think that's important listeners know so after your mother passed away you were basically finding places to crash around town and people again were reaching out and, and allow you to stay with them explain that yeah so that was so dad roofing you know my mother and father were still there they were still married technically but they were they were there people you know like some families are just little different families like they're not you know like your normal mom's dad's always there so my sophomore year my mother passed away and then my my main family was my my athletic trainer in high school it was doc and betsy who are now my parents and my my kids grandparents they so, invited you to live with them yeah so i stayed with them and they bought me cleats and you know i so saw i was living with them a lot and then my sister i lived with her a little bit and then she kind of went downhill a little bit but then i the best thing that happened to me was Doc and Betsy and then my wife. My junior year, I started dating my wife, and we were 17, which seems crazy, but I started living with Doc and Betsy. 
And my dad was still there. He was still in town and, you know, but it was not, it was not a situation where I needed to be staying there. Not a not, good situation. It was, it was okay. Not be good. Okay. So I would be living with Doc and Betsy and then I'd be living, I would stay at my wife's house, even though we're 17 and really her mom too is like my mom because we were 17 years old, but I was a good kid. You know, I'm not, not going to like a, doing a bunch of bad stuff or a knucklehead, but we was, I would be living with my wife and I would stay at her house and her mom and and her mom lives with us now still. So like it's, it's technically my mother-in-law, but it's really like, it's a weird situation. They took you in. Yeah. yeah it's like my wife's mom is kind of like my mom, even though it's my mother-in-law, which is a weird deal. But I don't think it's weird at all. Yeah. No, that makes so, total sense. So I stayed with my wife and her mom and Doc and Betsy. And then, so I'd kind of go back and forth. You were making it work, figuring it out. Okay. That's, that's what I understand. So you, let's fast forward a bit. So you're, Going into senior year, you're throwing in the mid-90s. You've got a natural gift. So that's what I wanted to understand. It was pretty clear at that point that baseball was your path. Yeah. I mean, looking back, like I was still, and I ended up playing the NFL, like I was still a better football player because it was the, my nature. Like I'm, I was tough, aggressive. Like once I got clocked at 91 my junior year and I had like a point six ERA or something like that my whole junior year, scouts started talking to me and you get those questionnaires in, in high school and my junior year. So now I'm starting to think like, well, I for sure got a chance to go play college baseball and I might get a chance to get drafted because I was throwing hard. But then I get to my senior year and I've gotten all these questionnaires from major league baseball teams and stuff. And I'm starting to think like, well, I mean, I'm, I might be really good. My first game, my senior year, there's like 27 scouts in the stands. So then I'm like, well, okay, this is real. Like they're talking to me when I'm warming up in the bullpen, asking me all these questions and I'm trying to get ready for the game. And there's 27 of those guns, radar guns, and they're lifting them up every time I pitch, and I'm just trying to throw as hard as I can just because I know, like, if I harder I can throw, the more chance I got to get drafted. And like you mentioned earlier, you didn't really have a baseball mentor. You didn't have a coach teaching you how to throw a curveball. You didn't. You're just kind of figuring it out. I'm okay. just slinging it. Like, I'm just – I have a weird delivery, like, kind of like a Tim Linscombe type thing, but it was working for me. I could throw strikes, and I was dominating. I, you know, I touched 96. You know, oh wow! In my senior year, I was I would throw low nineties, sit in low nineties, had a like an eighty mile an hour, like twelve to six hammer curveball, like I was good. You had like, a gift, yeah. yeah. I was good, I, and I knew I was good. When you're throwing that hard in high school, and you're, I was like really confident, and I also hit four hole, you know, hit really well, and I was a district MVP, all state player. One one funny story was that we were playing at like Birdville, a school, like it was the middle of the year. Every game I pitched, like there was scouts and they were watching me. And this is like halfway through the year. So I've seen like my wife, which is girlfriend at the time, she was basically my agent. So she'd be in the stands <laughs> talking to all these scouts. So she would talk to all these scouts and she would tell me what they were saying afterwards. She is a unique one for oh, sure. Oh, yeah. She's, <laughs> a different, she's a different lady. She yeah. is complete opposite of me as far as. Don't worry about these scouts, honey. I'll take care of them. <laughs> extra, yeah. She, I mean, she literally was extrovert and she she talks to everybody. And and one, one game we we're playing Birdville and we score like 11 runs in the first inning. You know, we're up 11 nothing. I was scheduled to pitch that game. So I'm pitching. I'm not like throwing as hard as I can because I'm like so many scouts have seen me. Like, and I've been, I throw so much because I'm, you know, I'm like the best guy at this point on my high school team. So they're throwing me all the time. Like I threw seven straight games in district. You know, obviously you shouldn't do that to a kid, but I'm, I'm not mad about it or anything. Like I don't care. I was ready to go. My arm was killing me, but I just fought through it. Like my, my elbow was yeah. killing me. Yeah. That's. Well, we're playing Birdville eleven nothing. I'm just kind of cruising the fastball in, and my wife, after the first inning, comes down to the dugout. She's like, "You gotta have to start throwing hard." There's a cross checker from whatever team that hasn't seen you before, and he told me like, "You know, they need to see you throw." 
So I go out to second inning and I start throwing hard again. Like just a funny story, like my wife, Bracey, like being my agent at the time. So I have a really good year. And you know, how the, the draft works is you, you graduate high school and hearing all this story that I've already told, you graduate high school, May 26th, and I'm at my wife's house and it's not like they're rich either, though. We're still in a trailer, but it's a way nicer trailer than what I had. It's like the <laughs> nicest thing I've ever seen. Like staying at Doc and Betsy's, like I didn't have like Dr. Peppers and Cokes and stuff all the time at my normal house. And like they had Dr. Peppers and they tell stories like, yeah, I would drink like a whole 12 pack of Dr. Pepper back then. <laughs> that I was never, a treat. Yeah. yeah I no, never I had can, that. I was like, oh my God. Like, I can relate. I hear you. Just the simple things. Like they had a pantry with food and you could just like go in there and eat whatever you want to. Like that to me was just baffling. It's like, I can just eat whatever I want to. Like you don't, you're not mad. Like, I can have as many of these as I want. So I just went crazy for a little while. Then I understood like, hey, I can't get, you know, big and fat. But I didn't have an agent besides my wife. So I'm, I just like old school days, 2000, this is 2003. Like I look on the whatever and see what the signing bonuses were for everybody. And and my wife and I are just telling people like if I get drafted in the top 10 rounds and they give me fair money, I'm going to sign. Because I'm like, I'm going to go prof- play professional baseball. And I'm going to make the big leagues. I'm going to be an all-star. We get to the draft, and I get drafted in the seventh round by the White Sox. Graduate high school, May 26th. I'm coming from nothing. I get drafted like June 3rd, like a week later after graduating high school. Then the, the scout comes down to try to sign me like a couple of days after that. So this is a week after graduating high school. I've never really been anywhere. The scout's coming down talking about we're going to give you 90000 or whatever and like a little bit of money for college. And I've already looked at the money. And so I kind of already had an idea of what the money should be. I looked at, la- you know, easy stuff like agents, not that hard. Like you look at what last year's draft pick got and I, I should get a little more than that. So I go back and forth with the guy and he goes outside and talks on the phone. And I end up signing with the White Sox for $120,000 at high school in the seventh round. And I go play in the minor league baseball immediately. You know, like it was like I graduated high school from everything I told you. And now I'm on, in Bristol, Virginia playing professional baseball. and. I've never even been out of Azle. I've never had any money. But $120,000 to me at 18 years old, coming from literally like hardly anything. It's a lot of money. Yeah. I thought I was like the richest person alive. To me, $120,000 is like perspective-wise like $10 million. But I was still smart with that. I didn't like go buy crazy things. So I go straight into minor league baseball. And the first day you get there and they give you like three days to find a place to live. You got to stay in a hotel. And I don't know anything. I mean, I literally like haven't been to like nice restaurants. And I find these other two kids that were college graduates and they let me stay with them. And all I have is a bike, a bicycle. It's all I, cause you don't get your signing bonus for a while. And I was making $850 a month in the minor leagues and riding buses and staying in like crappy places. And, but it was still minor league baseball. I knew like, I didn't understand the whole process, but I knew, you know, it was going to be a process to try to get in the big leagues. And, you know, it was a, it was not all glamorous. Well, like, yeah, I, we'll move it forward a little bit, but I most people don't know much about minor league baseball, and the reality is even for really successful players, it's a grind. It's a difficult process. There's no money involved, long bus rides, cheap food, cheap hotels, and oftentimes not a whole lot of people you can relate to. We'll move through minor league baseball pretty quickly, but was there happy times? Was it a grind the whole time? What was your experience in minor league baseball? It was a grind, and there was not a lot of happy times. My first year was my happiest because I was actually good. I went straight from high school season, pitching as much as I pitched, to go into minor league baseball right away in Bristol, Virginia. There was like nine people that spoke English on the team. I'm staying at this really crappy place, but I had a pretty good year. I had a good year, and then after that, I was awful. Couldn't throw strikes. 
So moving you forward, you spend three years in minor league baseball and then you're released by the White Sox and you play a bit of independent ball. But very quickly, you see that your baseball dreams are kind of over. And I want to ask you about that moment once you've kind of realized that it's over. I've come to believe that how we label experience, how we frame experience in our lives is very important. It's easy when something like that happens to kind of focus on the negative and not and and maybe miss the achievements or the successes. And I really believe, and I've said this before, that one can fail without the experience being a failure or certainly without the person being a failure. So I'm curious how you were framing that at, say, 23 years old when you kind of realize your baseball dreams are over. Was this a, a big failure? Was this a big embarrassment? Or was this maybe something that you feel like you gave it your all and you're kind of proud of your effort? A huge failure and a huge embarrassment to me. But I used it as the most important learning experience that I could have had. But in the moment, I'm sure that took some time. In the moment, and the reason I asked that question, James, is because I read that you were back in Azel and you were working the 5 a.m. shift at a health club making minimum wage. And this is really just going to highlight a mental weakness for me and project on you a bit. And I'm curious how you dealt with this. I would be thinking the whole time, what if someone sees me here? Three years after I was this big deal, three years after I was drafted, now I'm working for minimum wage. I'd be worried about what other people thought, which is corrosive and no one should do that. But I'm curious where it left you mentally when you're now working minimum wage back in your hometown. Did it shake your confidence? Where were you? Oh, I'm the same way. Like it was, you know, I've come from, I'm playing, I'm going to play in the big leagues. I'm going to be an all-star to I'm working minimum wage at a, a crappy like workout facility. And yeah, like I was embarrassed. I was a failure. I was married at 21. So I'm still married 16 years now. I was married. I just got fired in baseball. So I don't want to disappoint my wife. I don't want to disappoint all the people that have helped me. But I failed. But I'm but I'm also like immediately saying, I am going to go to college. And What's I'm gonna, next? I'm going to get a degree. There's no question about that. I'm not a dummy. I know I need to go to college. I know I need to graduate to go get a job. I'm still going to make a lot of money doing something. Like I am like, I am like laser focused on being successful. That's I thought so it was going to be man. Major League Baseball. And I got fired from that. And it was, you you think I'm 18 to 22 and I get fired from baseball and I'm bas- my career is over. Like that's, I was 22 years old. I've already been fired and not only fired, but I am, my career is completely done. I can't ever do that again. It's gone. I look at it and I'm like, you know what? I could have worked harder and I had regrets about it. I also look at it that I was worried about what everybody else was doing, what the other players were doing. Athletically, I was worried about what everybody's doing. And I was not like people were like, I was getting bullied, but I would take crap from people. You know, some pitcher would say something, I would kind of, you know, I wouldn't say anything back. I wouldn't stand up for myself. I was thinking in baseball, like, oh, if he does bad, then that's good for me. And I read, you know, read a bunch of books at that time. I started finally getting reading and starting to grow up. And when I got fired from baseball and I was like, I am going to go to college. And I'm, I saw people in high school that I played with that went and played college football that I knew I was better than. And I also saw like Chris Winkier, I think it was that. Guy that, I saw some guys that played minor league baseball. Florida State uh, quarterback played like 28 or something. I was curious why the process came from I'm going to go to college to I'm going to go to college and play football. That was so guys like Winky and seeing that kind of thought, hey, well, maybe I could give that a shot. Looking, I mean, as an older person now and like being a coach, like I'm, I mean, I, I just self evaluate myself. Like I had unbelievable, like just confidence, like and just belief that I can do it. 
even though I didn't play football for five years and I was in minor league baseball, it wasn't like I was still, I always worked out hard, but I just, in my mind, I said, I can play college football. I'm better than those guys. So I, I get done with baseball and I'm working these crappy jobs and not making any money. And I got a wife, you know, and I'm embarrassed. I'm failure, but I'm still believing to myself that, yeah. You're I not am. a failure, by the way. Quit saying that. You failed. You're not a failure. Got it. No, I, but I'm thinking that at the time. Yeah, like, you're thinking that. Yeah. Got it. And also, like, I understand how, like, I'm talking about I'm hardened. Like, I don't try to sugarcoat anything. I either, you either win or you lose. Like, and I felt like I lost. Yes, I failed, but I, that's not going to define me. Like, I'm going to be successful. And speak, I'm that way, too. I, I shut down a company that I didn't want to shut down. And for me, I remember talking to a mentor and being adamant that I – I called it a failure. And if I don't call it a failure, then I'm sugarcoating it. But I've since believed that how we frame an experience is important. And it's easy to kind of wallow and highlight the negative without saying, wait a second, that wasn't a failure. Look at all the damn impressive things you did there. So, well, I want to get into, let me do this. So your path to rice has kind of became rice lore. I mean, this is my first time I've met you, but I've heard the story and I'm curious how true it is so the story is that you decided to put together a tape send it to, to colleges wherever all over the place but you added a picture on the on the back of this tape of you like flexing with your shirt off and that what over the tape was what caught rice's attention do i have that right walk me through that experience i did i wasn't flexing because i was worried that i would look like a douche you know like <laughs> if i was standing there flexing but i did take my shirt off and i was in tights and i took a picture of myself and that was really my wife but I was a baseball player, and I was going to go play college football. That's what I wanted to do. I knew I was going to go to college. I want to play college football. So I was like, how do I do that? Nobody's recruiting me. You know, I'm 22, 23 years old, but I have all of my eligibility left, and I'm going to play college football. I'm in good shape. I work hard. I don't care if I got to walk on at Tarleton State or Cisco. And I went and visited those places, and they didn't even really want me. I'm like, so what can I do? I can write a letter. So I wrote a letter, like, explaining my situation. But I was like, well, they probably get hundreds of these, like, People writing letters, hey, I want to play college football there. They're like, yeah, whatever. I can get a tape together of my high school days, but that was I was five years removed, so I only had a couple of tapes that I could even find. And but I put that together, and I mark, it was VHSs, and I marked the time, and I found somebody that would put it into a DVD for me. So I put that together, and I had pictures from when I played high school, just regular pictures of me, like just so they know I actually played. I'm not a you know just a, a random person. I was going to do like videos of me like working out and dunking a basketball or just to show I'm athletic or running a 40. Like, cause I've also, I mean, I've seen TV at this point. I'm 22. I've seen the combine, the NFL combine and those things. So I'm thinking, what can I do to get, to get some college, some college coaches to think that they, they need to give me a chance. But also the Tom, the famous Tom Brady picture at the combine where he's standing there in his tights. And now as a, as an NFL coach now, like I'm looking at these pictures all the time, looking at the players and their bodies. That's, the, you know, our job. I'm thinking, well, they're going to see a baseball player if they even ever talk to me and they're going to think I'm a, I'm either like a, a really small guy or I'm a big guy. They're not going to think I'm athletic looking. And I've always been big, athletic big legs, but wiry skinny yeah. arms is your typical pitcher. Yeah. yeah. But so, but I'm like, you know, in good shape. Like I've always been really like good shape and look like a football player. I'm like, I need to, they need to see what I look like. And I, I'm like, I don't know if I want to do this though. But my wife was like, you need to do this. So we, I stood in front of a door and I just stood there with tights on. Cause I was like, I need to take my shirt off so they can look at me if they ever look at this. And she took a picture of me with my, in my tights. And it was like, it made it like an eight by 10 photo. And then I made this little envelope thing package and I made a bunch of them. And I was like, I'm going to send this to every college in Texas or anywhere. How many I schools could. did you send this to? Probably 20. 
And then I said, who do I know that played college football that knows coaches that I can get in contact with? Where can I visit those online questionnaires? I filled out all the online questionnaires for every single school in Texas. Like, I don't think anybody looked at any of these, but I did every one of them. I went and visited every place I could think of. Like, I just taught, I called everybody. I called colleges, footballs. I was like, hey, I'm James Casey. I played minor league baseball. I want to see if I can play at your school. Like, just as a 23-year-old person. Like, I'm just calling everybody and going everywhere. I went to Tarleton State. Like, went to a game. They, you know, like, oh, yeah, you can come down for this visit, you know, unofficial visit. And they didn't even offer me a scholarship. They're just like, yeah, yeah, we'd love for you to walk on. I'm like, and I go, I go to Tarleton State, and I'm in good shape. And I'm with these high school kids. And I'm 22, and I'm like in this. Whatever. I can pick this kid up and throw. Yeah, him, I'm but. like, <laughs> I will destroy these kids. Like, and I'm and I watch the game, and I'm looking at these guys, and I'm like, I'm just, I guess, I don't know. I guess I just have so much confidence. Like, I will, I will start here from day one. Like, and I'll be your best player. But I understand their perspective too. I'm, I'm a baseball player. I haven't played in five years, and. I only played like two games. They my get a ton of these. When I was at Rice, we got so many of those videotapes, and to find a way to stick out is very, very difficult. But I do want to hit on that confidence you had again, because I was the same way. I, I talked about this with Philip Umber. Is I came in as kind of the bottom of the recruiting class and really had no business believing it. But from day one, I was like, "Am I going to start? Hell yeah, I'm going to start." Like there has to be some of that in there. But so, how many? people responded to your mails and your calls and you're getting uh, no's or no responses is rice the only one who really stepped up and said we want you responded to your to your mail package the only one that like seriously stepped up and like invited me on an official visit and like really were interested in me and how much did that photo because my understanding of the story is like they didn't even watch the tape they just said hey look at this photo this guy's worth bringing in and taking a look at the photo was the only reason they <laughs> called me. Like I, I went to uh, Cisco Junior College. I was just trying to find anywhere I could play, and I was my belief was I can go to Cisco Junior College, dominate, and then I'll, I'll get picked up by somebody. I went to TCU. I eventually I wouldn't even talk. To, I didn't even talk to the coaches at TCU, but I got in contact with the recruiting coordinator or somebody or whatever, and they're like, "Oh yeah, come down and watch practice." Like it doesn't hurt them. And I went out to practice. I remember going and I was at TCU's practice. I walk out there. I'm a you know former baseball player, but I'm in good shape. I'm trying to show them that I'm in good shape. Andy Dalton's a quarterback, and I'm, I'm in my mind. I'm thinking I am better than him. I will start at quarterback for TCU if you give me a chance. And they they, they really didn't. They really weren't even like, oh, yeah, you can maybe walk on and see what you can do. So I was just so. Long story short, I have a, a guy walked on at TCU that went to Azo High School and he was younger than me, and I called him because I'm anybody I can think of that played college football or knows anybody. I was like, hey. I want to play college football. You know me. You knew I was athletic. I'm going to give you this packet if you could give it to the coaches. He was a walk-on wide receiver, and he ended up graduating from Rice and did well. And but he ended up quitting football after a couple of years. Just you know, he knew that he was not going to play in the NFL. He gives it to the wide receiver coach, and the wide receiver coach said that he just and this is after the fact that I've heard this story. He just puts it underneath his desk, like he he gets these all the time. And like one night during the week, he'll do some recruiting at night, and he's like looking through all of them, and he gets mine. He's got a DVD in the store, and he's whatever. Then he flips it over and he sees a picture of me. And he says, like, well, he's like, well, well, crap, I got to at least show this to the head coach. So the head coach gets it. It was Todd Graham at the time. And then he went to, once he gave me a scholarship, I never saw him again because <laughs> he went to Tulsa like the next couple of days after I got there. He looks at the picture and says, well, I guess we need to at least call this guy. So one of the coaches called me and we started talking. He kept calling me and he would talk to my coaches and we just, we kind of got a relationship. And 
they got to know me and they, you know, they got to see that I wasn't, you know, just some random guy. Like I actually was a real guy that could, you know, felt confident. And they invited me down on an official visit. And still at this point, I, I, I grew up poor. I played Miley baseball doing crappy motels and stuff. And then, so I still had not been to anything nice. I don't even know where Rice was, but I was like, it's a university, it's a division one university. So in my mind, I'm saying they invited me to official visit. I didn't know what that was. I just thought it was a normal, just go visit there. But they actually paid for my hotel. I was staying at the Westin in the Galleria and my wife came with me. I had never seen anything as nice as that. Like the hotel we were in, I was like, oh, this is the nicest thing I've ever seen. We drove like some really crappy brown car out there and the team was staying there. That's why we, now that I, you know, the team was staying there because it was the night before the game and they were paying for the hotel. And I was like, this is unbelievable. Like I, in my mind, I'm thinking, Maybe I can convince them to give me like a 10% scholarship or something and I'll get a loan or something. I'll make it work. If these guys give me a chance, I'll make it work. And I remember there being like a mini bar, like, you know, the things you get. I'm like, I'm not touching this as a setup. They're, they're going to try to set me up. <laughs> but the, so the team's doing their meetings and their meals and stuff. The, so the, the coaches like take me down to the team and I'm walking through the team and I've got like a tight shirt on because I want to impress them and, you know, kind of, you know, really silly stuff now, but. But I'm walking through there and all the players are just staring at me. But I'm still thinking, like, I can play here. No question about it. And we have our normal meetings. They let me sit in a meeting room or whatever. Rice was playing East Carolina that day at Rice Stadium. And they ended up winning the game on, like, a magical – Jarrett Dillard made, like, an unbelievable catch to, like, late in the game. And he I'm did like, that often. <laughs> yeah, he was – yeah. He was amazing. So that next day was Sunday. The, the official visits, they take you out to breakfast, they take you out to dinner, they take you to these, these nice places that I've never been to. I'm like, this is awesome. Like, to me, it was the fanciest things I've ever seen. Like, I meet with the head coach on Sunday and he says, we want to offer you a full scholarship. And they've never even seen me do anything, but they just, they talked to me, they saw my wife, they said, they took a chance on me. Did you play with Jeff Tarpinian with the Texans? I had Jeff Tarpinian on who played with the Texans and the Patriots, and we talked about this idea of making space for greatness. And I think that applies so much here, James, is that all of this work, I mean, it's hard work, but most people don't take that leap, don't take that chance. And I think it was actually Jeff who came up with that phrase is like, you know, he was an undrafted free agent that started for a Super Bowl bound Patriots team. And it's if you don't make that space, you don't give yourself a chance. And look what happens. I think it's just an incredible story, man. Getting outside of your comfort zone for yeah. people out there. Like get, you know, and never, don't ever be afraid to ask. Let them like, tell you no. Yeah, exactly. Like what is, in my problem, I was like, what's the worst that can happen? They can say no. I know I'm going to go to college somewhere and get an education. Like I might as well try to play football and I believe I'm good at it. And they offer me that full scholarship and I'm like, you like, Full scar, like you're gonna pay for everything. I'm like, this just blew. I mean, it's like this is the, it was. I mean, it is the most unbelievable break that could ever happen to somebody. They left some money on the table. They could have got you for cheap. <laughs> and that's how football is, you know. Like everyone it's all, gets yeah. full scholarship. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We were always jealous. You're like, this guy gets water and he's on full scholarship. But anyway. that's what, like, hearing the story from what we talked about so far with my upbringing and minor league baseball, and then getting a full scholarship to Rush University, my life just completely changed at that moment. And at the, all this time, I am like grinding, like working out. I'm only eating like eggs. That is it. Like I am like ripped. I don't eat any carbs. Like I am like working out. Like I was working at that gym. So I'm working out like two or three times a day. Also like, making like, phone calls, writing letters, getting no's, getting no responses, which is I'm just, going to the fields. I'm just like throwing to myself. I'm like running sprints. Like I am like, 
I am like unbelievably motivated after I got, you know, I'll, I won't say fired because I don't want to frame it like that, but that's how I think. Well, you got but released. Yeah, you got fired. That's fine. It didn't work out. Even though I do, I always look at it as a, a unbelievable experience. It was a great, you know, I learned a lot of things that it's rare that you get to get completely, you know, released or fired from a, a career and you can't ever do it again. You're going to learn some lessons right there if you use it for the right way of like no regrets. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing. Be respectful, but you know, you're in control. And they gave me that, they offered me a scholarship to play defense. I've never even played defense in my life. And they're like, you can take a second to think about it. I was like, what do I got to think about? Like, I'm coming here, no question about it. I'm going to make you look amazing. I'm going to make this great. So, like, I'm immediately like, absolutely, I'll play whatever position you want me to. They're like safety, linebacker, whatever. I'm like, deal, let's go. Once they said it was a full scholarship, I mean, that's like, whatever, $250,000 or something. I was like, I, I understand this this opportunity. Like, no, and I'm going to make it work. I'm going to make you look good. I'm going to make it. I'm not going to have any regrets. Nobody's going to outwork me, literally. Like, there's no chance that I'm going to work harder than everybody in the country to make this thing work because I'm not going to let what happened in baseball ever happen to me again. So, there, I mean, you ask anybody at Rice, like, there is without a question I worked harder than everybody in the country. Like, working out, studying, school, football, everything. I was like a psycho. I also think the maturity way. is a huge advantage. Like, if, if everyone started school at 23, 24, I bet grade point average would jump out. Oh, no question. I mean, your maturity level is different. I, I often say education's wasted on the young. If I could go back to school now, I'd be just in those classes trying to soak up all I can, whereas I was trying to make a grade oftentimes. But I'm going to move you forward a little bit so we keep moving. Please do, because I'm going to go forever on this No, this yeah. is great. This is great. But so you kind of get your football feet back underneath you as a freshman and then as a sophomore, which I guess you're 25 at the time, 24? I was 24, 25. 24, yeah. you just go off. You're all-conference, you're all-American, you set school records and receptions, yards gains, touchdowns, you're playing every position. I'm wondering, prior to that, were you looking at this as an opportunity to make the NFL, or this was just like, hey, I can get my education paid for and go to – how were you looking at it prior to this success? I was not thinking NFL. I was just thinking I'm going to be the – but I was like – I'm going to get a college yeah, degree and they're yeah. going to pay for some of it. And yeah. I'm going to be really good. Like I'm not – like I'm going to – I was just thinking if I can get my foot in the door anywhere, I am going to be the starter and I'm going to be great because I just knew I was going to work so hard. I knew I've always been talented and they gave me the defensive scholarship and then the head coach Todd Graham leaves like three days later. I never even see him again. And then Coach Bailiff comes in and – we have, you know, the one-on-one meeting, whatever. I'm like, they gave me a scholarship to play defense, but I really believe I can help this team as a quarterback. Even though we had Chase Clement, looking back, it was great, great player. And he says, okay, but I still stay at linebacker. They put me at linebacker because the defense changes. So and I came in the spring. So I went through all spring practices. I was the biggest linebacker, so they moved me to defensive end. So I played the whole spring as a defensive end, even though I've never done that. Like, it was just completely – I was still thinking to myself, I'm going to be the best defensive end on the team, and I'm going to be an all-conference player, and I'm going to lead the nation in sacks. Like I was just like so confident, and so driven. I was going to find, I was determined. Like I'm going to find a way to be the best. But I keep talking to the coaches. I stay after practice every day in the spring, and I start throwing to the receivers, even though I'm a defensive end, telling them I can play quarterback. I can help this team on offense. I'm an offensive player. I've always been an offensive player. We go into the summer, and we were doing seven on seven things. The offense was, but I'm a defensive end. But I would just go with them. I was like, well, I'll go just to watch because I'm still thinking in my mind I can play offense. And like a running back wouldn't show up. So I would play running back as a defensive end and, you know, Chase, Chase Clement would tell me what to do. And 
So I just kept showing them that I can do it. I can do it. And then they finally keep showing up. I just want to highlight that again. It's just another making space. I'm going to show up. I'm going to be there. Where do you running back? Put me in. It's just another life lesson of like, just show up, answer the bell. What I keep hearing is like, I'm going to answer the bell. I'm going to answer the bell and I'm going to try to be great. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Like you're going to have to tell me no, like I'm not just going to, and I'm so driven to be really successful and to win. Like I want to win. I want to be good. I don't want to let people down. I want to let myself down. So I'm like extremely driven. And they eventually, Coach Herman was the offense coordinator who went on to be the head coach of Texas. And and he, they eventually watched me throw. And oh, like, I didn't hey. make that connection. Yeah. So Tom Herman, was, okay. Yeah, Tom Herman was the offense coordinator. And he came in with Bailiff. So they eventually said, okay, they saw me throwing after practice every day. You know, like I was, and they said, okay, we're going to move you to quarterback. And I don't know what the decision process was then because I was going to start a defensive end too. They're, they make the decision to move me to quarterback when we come back for fall camp. So the whole team doesn't know I'm like, they're moving to quarterback. And I remember, like, just you talked about, like, you know, what you look like when I'm working at that gym. Like, I specifically remember, like, some guy, like, I'm telling him, like, yeah, I'm going to go play college football. And him just looking at me like, you know, like, yeah, whatever. And I'm just like, like, just, I'll show you. You know, basically, like, you'll see. Don't I didn't say anything to him, but I'm just thinking, like, I'll show you. And just those things, like, same thing. I was like, okay, I'll show you. And even though I didn't say anything to him, but in my mind, I'm just another thing that motivates me. And they move me to quarterback. And then, so I'm chasing the quarterback. He's amazing. So they don't let me play quarterback, but I practice hard and they, you know, I do wildcat quarterback. And then they move me to receiver because we have some injuries. So I start doing a bunch of different things on offense. And then I score the first touchdown though of the season, you know, coming from all this stuff we heard. And I'm like, I'm, I'm the, I score the first touchdown of the season as a wildcat quarterback. Not even being in offense the whole offseason until fall camp. And then we have some receiver, receivers get injured. I start doing receivers, but they still like don't play me a bunch. And we finally get to Southern Miss on Wednesday night. We're playing a Wednesday night game, which is weird. And I, I'm assuming the coaches said, all right, let's let him play. And they like they asked me, hey, do you know defensive end? Do you remember the defensive end stuff? I don't really know it, but I'm like, yeah, I know everything. I, I, I remember all of it. What's there to know? Tackle the quarterback. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just the, we have these wristbands, all these different calls on defense, but Again, it's just the confidence. Like, I wasn't going to let them know that I did. I'm like, yes, I know everything. I'm ready to go. Put me in the game. And we do like a walkthrough. So we get into the game Wednesday night. I'm playing Wildcat quarterback. I score a touchdown as a quarterback that game. We're not very good, but we, this is the first game we win. You know, I think I caught some passes. I was uh, on the punt team. I was a holder on field goal. And I'm standing behind the defense coach every time we're on defense, even though I'm an offense player, just because I'm like, put me in, put me in. We finally have an injury or two, and they said, James, you're in. Which is looking back now, like that is really extremely rare. Like I scored a touchdown as a quarterback that game, and they let me play defense. And I'm in a Division One football game. You had a sack, and I, I sacked believe. the quarterback. Yeah. I played like five defensive plays and like did great. Like a tackle for loss, a sack, which is, just doesn't happen. Like, but it's also the maturity, and I'm older, and I just have that belief in myself. I also think if you don't have this path, this journey, that facing what you did with your mother, facing what you did with growing up in humble beginnings, to say the least having the setback in minor league baseball, you may not have the hunger you did. It's almost like, this is a dangerous word, but it's almost like it was an advantage for you to grow up the way you did because you were hungry in a way that someone that lives in this neighborhood we're talking in right now is not going to be hungry. I remember, you know, you played it to an advantage. It was a a big time because I I went through all those struggles and I finally got to that point where I was getting some opportunities and I was not going to let it passed me by I was no you know obviously no entitlement whatsoever like I'm just grateful to be there and I'm going to do anything I can to be good and make you look good 
make the people that give me chances look good and to make sure I don't disappoint the people around me. Like, even if I did disappoint them, I was telling myself, like, as long as I am doing everything humanly possible and I have no regrets and I'm working as hard as I can and I'm doing and I'm looking at everything as an opportunity, even if I do fail, I still can hang my head out because I know I'll leave this football career and I'll say I did everything I could. And I literally no regrets whatsoever. I did everything I could. I worked hard, right mindset, all that stuff. I mean, like punt returner, I'm, I'm standing on the sidelines and I'm seeing our punt returner just not catch the ball well. And it's like, during, I'm like, I just walk out there and start just catching the punt just to show them like, I can do this because I want to win and I'll do anything. I eventually start catching some and they let me be the punt returner, even though I'm six three, two, you know, forty or whatever. Like I want to point out too, I think most of the people that listen to this probably came to know James Casey from the Texans or the Eagles. But those of us that came to know you at Rice know you as like this shifty, hurtling, spinning punt returner, all these things. Whereas I think in the Texans it was more like catch the ball, put my shoulder down, get upfield. I actually remember so my first twelve years of my career, we had awesome seats for the Texans. And I think this was at a home game. You came and old James Casey came back and you tried to do like a spinning 360 in the air and got flipped upside down. And I remember like Kubiak grabbing you. It was probably like, hey, put your shoulder down and, you know, run straight ahead. But at Rice, I mean, you were, this is going to date me, but you were Barry Sanders more than you were put your shoulder down and get upfield. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing I learned as I went into the NFL and I was an NFL coach and an NFL player. Like, yes. I was unbelievably fortunate at Rice to get so many opportunities. You know, I had, like you said, I had 111 catches in my sophomore season. But I was also not afraid of the moment, any moment. Like, I was like, give me the ball. Like, not When, I would, did, when not, did this I would, transition happen to going like, oh, wait a second, I think I could play this professionally. When did that happen? Was that in your sophomore year? During my sophomore season. Same thing as, as baseball, kind of like during my sophomore season, like I started getting contacted from, you know, like agents that would like call me or email me and. I would look at the website saying that I, I was like ranked as a NFL, possibly NFL tight end. So I'm like, I'm, and it was the same kind of belief system. Like I can do this. Like now I'm even more motivated to be really good. Was it also a logistical sense that I'm 25, it's time to go. It's either now or never. Like I've got to, I got to make it work. Is that why you decided it was time your sophomore year to move on? Absolutely. I mean, I was, I love rice. They gave me this. I mean, it, it's, but father time is yeah, ticking. But I was and 25 years old. I was married. I had about as good a year as I can have. Tom Herman, offensive coordinator, left. Our strength coach left. Chase Clement graduated. Jarrett Dillard was graduating. And I was going to come back and play. Won a bowl game that year. I remember that. That was a fun year to be a Rice alumni. I went to that Texas Bowl. Was it Central Michigan or something? And uh, Yeah, we had a great year. We were 10-3. and Like It was just an unbelievable experience. The whole year was just amazing. And I didn't want to leave, you know, of course, because I knew I was going to. But I'm also disciplined enough to know I'm going to graduate college. It's like. So my window of opportunity is so small. I'm going to come back and play quarterback at Rice for the next two years. I mean, I do believe I could be an NFL quarterback. In my mind, I'm like, I can play quarterback in the NFL. And I'm going to come back for two years, and if I do really well, I may have a chance to play NFL quarterback. But I'm also saying that's going to be really hard. There's only one quarterback on the team. I've showed I can run and catch and tackle and do that stuff. So I'm like, I'm going for it. So I enter the draft and go to the combine and do all those things and and you know get drafted in the fifth round by the Let's move forward there. So you're drafted by the Texans in the fifth round. And I'll just say this, your your belief and your mentality is is so strong. It's it's something certainly to learn from. Were you confident in a well, let's talk about two things. Number one, your confidence level in a roster spot. And number two, the reality is now looking at it as a coach. Do you think 
you had a roster spot coming in or you coming into that Texans team, you had a lot to prove and you probably had just as likely a chance of getting cut that first year. What, what do you think? I was not confident. I mean, I was confident, but I would knew. I didn't think I had a roster spot at all. Like I was like, I'm going to have to like be great in special teams and everything just to make the team. And what do you think the probability was outside looking in of you making that team as a fifth rounder? I thought it was 50, 50 because I was a fifth-round pick, so you know those you typically have a good shot. But they drafted a tight end in the fourth round that same year, the round before me, the Texans did, and I was like the I don't know, like I was like fifteenth tight end taken or something like that, which that motivated me obviously. But I was, you know, I was thinking like, okay, I got a little bit of a signing bonus. I think I got one hundred twenty thousand for baseball, and it was done spent by that point. And then I got like one hundred eighty something thousand as a football player in the fifth round. But it's still like that's not – I'm an older now. I understand like that's not going to be like life-changing money. That's great money, but I need to make the team. And I'm married. You know, we want to start a family. But I'm telling my wife like, no, we're not I, – I cannot. we cannot have a kid unless I make the actual roster the, to day one. Then I'll feel a little bit more comfortable still every day I got to work for it. So I didn't know for sure I was going to be on the team. But you, I was knew the realities, yeah. you knew the realities of the NFL training camp, that there was what – 53-man roster, and they bring in, what, 80 people or something like that? Yeah, at that time, and they drafted a tight end the fourth round. I'm just looking at the numbers. So when you walk into the locker room internally, did you still have some of that internal confidence? Were you intimidated, a bit of both? Or did you, you know, what, were you, what were you thinking when you walk into that locker room, which is filled with some pretty talented players at that point? I was still very confident, but I was also um, introverted anyways. And I didn't, it wasn't like at Rice, I was like in the locker room talking to people or anything. I was still just like focused on what I did. Like I was letting my play speak for myself. But in the NFL, it was, I knew I was a rookie. Like nobody cares about me anyways. Like I'm just, I'm going to have to just show these guys that I'm tough and I can play. And it's a completely different game, NFL, as opposed to college. And I'm playing fullback. You know, I went from catching, spinning, doing all these crazy things in college to like blocking the linebacker every time. Like they don't even throw me the ball in practice. I mean, I'm I'm lucky if I get one pass in a practice. So I'm just like, I got to completely change everything about me. Like, I'll add blocking the most athletic people on earth. I mean, linebackers can run with wide receivers and lift with the linemen. And it's like, go for it, buddy. I'm ending up having to block like Ray Lewis and Bart Scott as we go and all these guys. And the most important thing that happened to me, though, that year was, so I'm, I did, had a great college career. I only played two years, but I had a great college career. I go to the NFL fifth round i'm in training camp they drafted fourth round tight end i know i'm gonna have to grind to make this team and we're in practice one day in training camp and we're doing goal line period and i'm playing fullback and tight end i'm playing all everything because i know i'm gonna have to be smart you know i'm a rice guy i gotta be smart i gotta know every position so i knew all the positions and i'm playing fullback and i'm we're doing goal line period so it's it's we're thudding we're bumping and i'm practicing as hard as i can i believe in my mind because this is another thing that happened to me that completely changed my perspective and i think it'd be good for that kids to hear I'm thinking to myself, I'm going 100%, and I'm going hard. And the head coach, Kubiak, which is the best thing anybody could have said to me, he comes up to me and he's like, Casey, I know you think you're going hard, but you're not going hard enough. This is not going to cut it. You're not going to make the team doing what you're doing. You're going to be on the streets. I'm just like, oh, crap. So the next play and forever after that, I'm going harder, and I'm playing harder, and I'm being more violent, I'm attacking, I'm being aggressive, I'm being tough. I'm playing harder. So I'm playing harder than what I what I was originally, even though I thought I was originally 100%. What was it, the level of violence, intensity? I mean, what, it wasn't like you were trying to run harder. It was, what was it? Was it was the violence and the intensity and the aggressiveness, the extra little finish. You've got to flip extra a little switch. Strange, the extra little strain to move, guys. You know, I used to think like 110%, what the, you know, what is that silly? Like it's 
but it's also like raise your hand as high as you can, like some coaches said, and then like well, raise it higher. Then you raise it higher. You're like, Epiphany right away said, he told me I wasn't playing hard to make the team. Next play, I'm playing harder. Like, why the hell was I not playing at that level from the very beginning? Like, it's the NFL. Like, there's millions of dollars at stake. I could play professional football. Why was I not doing that in the beginning? It's just because I just, I think in my mind, I just, I thought I was, but there was more in there. That's what coaching is. You know, there was more in there than what I thought there was. That's what I try to get due to my players now coaching wise. But it's also for just like younger, younger kids, any, anybody, any athlete that's listening to this, that's uh, mostly professionals are like this. They, they go like it's, it's full tilt when they're going, but like younger kids in college and high school, they think they're going really hard in football or even baseball, but there's more in there. And in their mind, they are going 100%, but they're not. Like, you got to find something that motivates you. Something, you got to find something that motivates you to go that extra, that extra strain, that extra determination to not be defeated. I will not be beat. I'm not going to let this guy make the tackle. I'm not going to let this pitcher strike me out. I'm going to locate this fastball. I'm going to hit this basketball shot. Like, whatever that extra determination is. And for me, it like changes, like that changed me. But then every single day, it was, I had to find something that was going to motivate me. You know, I would read something or I would just even like in college, and you know, we're playing somebody and I'm just looking at the other team and I'm just like finding something that like really, really pisses me off. Nothing bad, but like to make me some kind of like that blood to boil to like really be making sure I am playing at like maximum, maximum effort, finding things to motivate you. Do you remember, uh, I know you remember, but walk us through finding out you made the team. It's really kind of, it was kind of weird how they do it. You know, like I'm really like intense person. You know, we play the final preseason game and it's at Tampa Bay. And I know it's the fourth, the fourth preseason game at the time, the last game, like none of the stars are playing. I'm playing that game as if it's the Super Bowl, the most important game of my life. And I'm playing every single snap, playing all special teams. I'm playing fullback. I'm playing tight end. And I'm going to that game saying, I'm going to have to like do really well this game to have a chance to make this team. And I have a good game, and I'm going hard every play. Like, I'm doing everything. And the other tight end didn't have as good a game. But, again, I learned in baseball, like, I don't care. I'm rooting for him. I want him to do well. Like, I'm not worried about, like, how well he does or doesn't do. I want him to do well because that is not going to affect how I do at all. But I have a good game, and we fly back to Houston, and then the next day is the final cuts. So you go from, you know, whatever it was. It was like 90 to 53 or 75 to 53. Hiding from your cell phone. (laughs) Yeah. And what they do is that if you're going to get released, they'll call you. And they'll say, hey, come to the building and bring your playbook. And I'm just sitting there, like, waiting. And I never get a call. But all day long, I'm just like, oh, God, like, please don't call. Please don't call. They never call me. So I just come to work the next day, and I'm still like, I don't know. And I didn't get a call. Like, I'm making sure everything's good. So I'm just walking in. Like, everything's in my locker. So I'm like, okay, I think I'm on the team. But I'm still, like, paranoid about it. And I talk to the coach. I'm like, I'm on the team. And he's like, yeah, you're on the team. So then I'm like, okay, I made the team. But even then, it's like week to week, you know, like NFL in a professional job, like, you know, there'll be days in practice and then somebody just comes and, you know, somebody gets released. Like, so every day you're fighting for your life, your job. I want, I mean, you're kind of hitting around it, but I want you to put your finger on what separated you and allowed you to to make that team maybe a little bit more particular. When I speak to my teams in business or business leaders I think it's really important for a business to identify what we do better than anyone else. And sometimes it's very technical for us. Sometimes it's our technology, our software is more advanced than our peers. Sometimes it's very philosophical. We care about our customers more than anyone else. And so I'm 
curious what you think you did better than everyone else. Uh, what, what separated you and allowed you to make that team? When I got to the Texans and I'm as a rookie and I'm thinking, I've got to make this team. I've got to make in the NFL. I'm not, I want to be a star player. I want to play in Pro Bowls, but I'm also, I'm a fifth round pick. They have Owen Daniels. They have Andre Johnson. They have star players. I learned early on that they are not throwing me the ball like they did in college. Like I'm not going to catch a hundred passes this season because they're just never throwing me the ball. Like there's no plays designed for me. I'm James Casey. I'm a fullback tight end. Like nobody cares about me. So I immediately said, okay, then I'm changing. I'm like, okay, they're my best thing I do is like run catch, but they're not doing that for me. So I'm like, what do I got to do to make this team? And then, so I know immediately it's going to have to be special teams. I'm going to have to be tough and I'm going to have to play special teams. I was just like determined to be, when I wasn't very good as a rookie, but at least I showed the coaches that I can run down on kickoffs. I can play on punt team. I can play on punt return. I can be kickoff return. I can play multiple positions on offense in case you need me on offense, even though they're not going to play me on offense a bunch. So I just showed versatility and I showed I am tough and I'm willing to do all the special teams. What I'm hearing is adaptable. I'm ever adaptable. Like I will adapt to any situation better than anyone. And not only will I do it, will I play special teams? I will love it. It'll be the most important thing in my life. I will love punt team. I will love kickoff team because I know that's how I'm going to make the team. So we played Kansas City. It was our first preseason game my rookie year. I'm just trying to make the team. And I haven't been great in practice, even though I'm playing as hard as I can, but I don't know what I'm doing. Like I would, you know, it's NFL, it's way different. I don't know what the, all the stuff that goes into it, but I'm playing hard. And if we finally get in a game in like the second half and I, I get to run down on a kickoff and I'm like, I've got to make this tackle. Whatever happened, I got to make this tackle. And I'm hauling. And I'm not the super most fast guy. I was in college, but NFL, there's guys can roll, but I'm running as fast as I can. And I make the tackle my first kickoff. And I'm like, okay. And then we get on kickoff return. I'm like, I'm going to have to make this block to make this team. And the coach has been on me all training camp, like basically just like beating me down. He's trying to motivate me to understand how tough it's going to be, but he's just beating me down. I'm just like, I can't do anything right. So we get into the game, and I'm like, I'm going to have to make this block. And I'm studying everything, but I go and I grab a hold of the guy, and I block him and do a great job, and we get a big kickoff return. And I'm like, okay, I'm showing him now. I can show him I can do it. And I finally get a chance to get in the game as a tight end, like late in the game. And they throw me like a stick route and it's raining, but they have to dive to catch it. And I catch it one handed and I pull it in. And I think it was like a sports center top 10 play, like my first catch ever in the first preseason game. So I'm like, okay, I'm showing them out. Like I'm putting all this work in. They've been on me. They've been on me, but I'm showing them I can, I can show up when it's game time and I can make plays. But long answer, it was special teams to me. It was like, how do I make this team special teams and being tough and versatile? I can do anything. I'm never going to miss a practice. I'm never going to miss a rep. You're not. I'm not going to be hurt. Even if, I'm always hurt. Like your football, I was always hurt. I'm like 10 surgeries. Like there's things that hurt on me, but I'm playing through it. I'm not coming off and I would do whatever you ask me to. Yeah. It sounds like you thrive under putting that pressure on yourself too, which I'll say, I don't know what this says about me, but I was at my best when I felt very secure in my spot and I could like joke on the field. I could just, I just knew that I was in my spot. It sounds like you really thrived undergoing, put the pressure on me, which might maybe later in your career. I tend to think that talent thrives when you're, when you're jovial and when you just free, you know, I, I agree. I, I believe the same thing. Like, and I try to do that to my players and I, I'm the same way. I, I play, I feel like I play best when I'm comfortable and I know I got my spot. I know I'm going to get opportunities and I'm still going to work really hard and do everything I was doing. But also I think a problem with people, NFL is like a, a beautiful, like, just like an experiment with like human psychology and like is that you also got to have awareness too. 
You know, like I understood I'm a fifth round pick. We have players that can play tight end. I'm not playing tight end. I knew pressure was on me. You got to have the awareness to I can't be comfortable out there as a rookie and as a young player. Like there's no comfort. I mean, I've got to joking around on the field for you. Yeah, Yeah. I've got to produce or I'm not making the team. I'm not a seven year NFL vet that's established myself like so. Yeah, I want to I want to go out there and play hard and be confident. But I'm also like I understand I got to have a personal awareness too. like and like I'm not a guaranteed spot like the pressure is on me. And I am aware of that. So I'm going to have to go produce. And then when I get, you know, when I, as, I, as I played and I became a starter, I was comfortable, but I'm still operating as if I play better because I'm comfortable and I feel better about everything, but I'm still. The work level doesn't change. The intensity doesn't change. It's just the, the mentality. Yeah, the you mentality have some awareness, though, too, you know. I want to ask you, so after four years with the Texans, you sign a, a very lucrative contract with the Philadelphia Eagles. And maybe this happened before that, but was there a moment of reflection sometime after that contract signing, a moment of taking in this entire journey we've been covering today and taking in what you'd accomplished and going, wow, you know, we did it. Did you ever have that moment? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Like what the the big moments for me was like that first game. I made the NFL roster thinking back through everything. I'm like, we were playing the Jets week one in the regular season. And I'm just like, just taking time to enjoy the moment, you know, like getting out there pregame and just the first kickoff, like just looking around and be like, we're at the, the Houston, Texas stadium. I know what it's called now, but it was reliant. And I'm just like, this is, I am in the NFL. Like all the stuff that I went through, I'm here, but I still like you're setting new goals. And another one was the Eagles. Like I played four years in the Texans. I didn't really do much. And then I finally got some opportunities and showed I can play and help the team. And we went to the playoffs and, and then I got that contract with the Eagles. I think it was, it was three years, $12 million or something. And, my, when my agent told me that, I was like, immediately, I was like, this is the most amazing thing that can happen. It's all worth it. I mean, like you said, up to that point, you can really get cut at any time. I mean, that was the first one I'm going through your story, James, where I'm going, yeah, you've made it and you've made a little bit of money, but you're finally signed something and you're going like, all right, no matter what happens, like I have some sort of, I've made it. All this is paid off. It just, oh, yeah. Because yeah. I mean, my four years with the Texans, I'm making NFL salary. I'm making money. But- I didn't have a big signing bonus, and I'm I still don't have like a million dollars in the bank after playing four years in the NFL and like saving money and being disciplined investing and all that stuff. You start and, realizing how expensive yeah, life is, and you see sure. you got insurance. I got kids. Like I'm not going to live on. I think I had like seven hundred thousand or something at the time after those four years in the NFL. Then I get that contract with the Eagles, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm guaranteed six million dollars before taxes. Like I'm making half of that or whatever after taxes, but I'm like. I'm at least guaranteed now from all the hard work and everything I've done. And I've grinded for ever since I was, you know, my mother passed away. Like I have been like working nonstop every single day, doing something like being, being intentional with what I'm doing, being productive. And I've got to the point where I've got this money to at least I have some security and my kids are never going to have to live in trailers and have roaches everywhere and do all that stuff. So it was just like, boom, okay. Basically, that was the time I was like, okay, I made it. All that stuff was worth it. It paid off and hard work pays off, basically. What a wild story. Yeah, well, I picked up a couple of things. I've got two more questions for you, James, that just preparing for this, I heard that I I think are interesting to highlight. And so going back to your time in high school, one of the, you share about hard work, you share about perseverance, but you also have taken the time to share about the importance of not being afraid to ask for help, I think is how you phrased it. You point out that that's very, very important. And I, I think that's something that's not said enough 
especially to athletes and high level performers, because I've spent most of my life thinking that asking for help symbolizes that I can't handle it or that I'm weak in, in some way. So speak about what you've learned along your path about asking for help. You know, everybody says they work hard. Like you go talk to anybody on the streets, they're going to be like, oh, I work really hard. I work harder than everybody else. Like, okay, that's just, a, that's just something somebody says. Like, I work hard. You know, I worked hard to, to do that in the NFL. It did not just happen. Like, I grinded. But even that is not going to be enough. Like, you're going to, you know, I knew that I needed help. I needed people around me that were going to support me and take care of some of the things that, that I didn't need to be thinking about because I was just like so driven on what I was doing. Yeah, no matter how hard you work, no matter how good you are at certain things, like if you really want to achieve great things, like you're going to need help. And that's one thing I have been, you know, pretty good at is that not a, not everybody, but I've had help along the way, obviously, like in high school on Azel, all the community giving me money, Doc and Betsy, like my wife's mother, my wife is number one helping me. Like my wife has been there since I was 17 years old and doing everything. I mean, it's hard to be a, a normal human being with all the stuff I did, like how hard I worked and all these things, like. Uh, like my wife's going to have to do basically everything else. Cause I'm so focused on what I'm doing. She's, she handles like everything else and she keeps me, you know, motivated and she's hard on me too. Just like, and I want her to be hard on me. She's hard on our boys. And it's just having those people around you that are going to help you. Cause, and then just not, don't be afraid to ask, obviously, you know, like I wouldn't have went to rice unless I started just sending stuff to schools. You know, I wouldn't have done anything like, cause ability is nothing. If you don't ever get the opportunity, it doesn't matter. You got to find ways to get those opportunities. You got to get yourself in front of people. You got to get outside your comfort zone. So you got to ask and you got to get outside your comfort zone. And you can't be afraid of that. You got to, and whatever you're uncomfortable doing, that's probably what you need to do because that's probably what's going to make you improve you. And it's probably wh where the opportunity is going to be. And that's where greatness is found for sure. in those uncomfortable spaces. Last question, man, looking back, you're now a father, you're a husband, you've done all these things. What, what are you most proud of looking back? Absolutely. Family. I'm sure everybody you asked that question to is going to be that like most proud of my two boys. They're 12 and eight. They're in baseball and they're great kids. They're tough because I've, I've kind of trained them to try to be as tough as possible. Like all the things that I've been through, like as hardened as I am, like there's one thing I do not, I cannot stand. I do not want to be seen as weak at all. I'm not weak. Like I'll do dumb things like everybody does, but I'm not weak. Like I'm a tough person and you're going to have to be tough too. If you're going to be successful mentally and physically, but just trying to, my boys, just the toughness that they have right now at 12 and 8. Like, they don't, when they're playing baseball, they don't get hit by a pitch and lay on the ground and cry. They don't lay on the ground and cry or pretend to be hurt at all unless it's a real hurt. Because as a kid, I didn't allow that. Like, I don't, I, in my opinion, I know this is, everybody's got different opinions. But to me, like, if you want to be successful in a lot of things and you're a man, like, you're going to need to be really tough. You don't need to show weakness. And, yes, there's. Physical weakness. You don't need to show physical weakness. You need to be able to ask for help and all those things, but you need to be tough. But it's my, my wife and I'm married 16 years. You know, I'm a faithful husband, you know, and to me, it's like I decided to get married to her. I love her and I'm most proud of being a good husband. Like we have our issues like everybody, but I'm always faithful. Like I'm never leaving. I'm always going to be loyal. I'm never going to talk to another woman like that's We are husband and wife. I'm never, never changing. And my kids, same way, I'm never leaving my kids. I'm always going to be there. Like all the struggles that I've been through, that's the difficult thing now is with my kids. They're not going to have all the struggles. So I'm like, I'm always thinking about like, but it's not a bad How do thing I build either. that resilience? Yeah. How do I, yeah. It's not a bad thing either. I dealt with a lot of struggles. I grew up really bad, but I worked my tail off to be successful and to make money. And now my kids have money. They go to a nice private school. 
They have everything. They have all the best trainers. That's not a negative. And I look at people that look at that as negative. Yeah. Like, why is that bad? That's you should be. They should be commended because their their father and their family has put them in a good situation. Like, why is that a bad thing? But it is bad if they get entitled and they start, you know, like just assuming certain things are going to happen. But that's what people should want. You should want kids that grow up in good situations. But the parents still got to instill that toughness because just like a really poor kid, sometimes they don't have any discipline. Sometimes the kids of the really rich parents don't have any discipline because the parents are working so hard. They're not around. They're not trying to teach them on the toughness and the determination that it takes that they did to be successful. So it's just trying to instill that with the kids. And I don't ever want them to look, look at negative on them that they are the rich private school silver spoon fed kids because I'm going to make sure they're not that. If they ever, if I ever even hint that, I'm going to lose my mind on my kids because that is the worst thing possible. I never want to be seen as pretentious or snooty or I'm better than anybody else because I'm not. I'll go roof right now if I have to to work. I'll do anything. Like I'll clean whatever. Like I don't, I want to make sure my kids have that same mindset. I want to make sure no one looks at my kids like that, but they got to go prove that to people. They got to go prove that they don't think they're better than anybody else. You know, we want you to be great, but it's more important that you're good. That's what we say to my girls a lot. Like, we're going to work to be great, but it's more important that you're good. Yeah. And have integrity. Kind. Yeah. You know, be, honest, be honest with yourself, too. Be honest with yourself. Be kind. Be respectful. And be accountable. If anybody can blame something or be a victim, it would be me. And some of the stuff I've been through, I can be a victim. I could say, oh, well, these bad things happened to me and blame somebody else or blame this situation or well, how's that going to help me? That's out of my control. Like, I never want to blame somebody else or complain about something that's out of my control. I'd rather spend my time on myself, working on making sure I'm good and doing what I need to. And yeah, there's going to be obstacles in the way, and there's some things that are out of my control that are bad that happen, that are tragedies or whatever. But you learn from them and you say, okay, instead of complaining about them or, you know, being a victim about it and try to make people feel sorry for me, like, how's that going to help me? Why don't I go and do something? Even if I got to get away from that situation, go do something to be really good or do things I enjoy and spend my time being accountable and always being like extremely accountable. Like, I bet you're a Jocko Willick fan, aren't you? I've listened to some of him. You read Extreme Ownership? Extreme Ownership is kind of what you're describing. Extreme accountability. We used to try to do that within our companies. Like whatever happened, whatever problems were thrown at us, we were thrust into unfair situations. We're accountable. We're in charge of the outcome. You know, I'd just be matter of fact too. Like have integrity, be honest with your situation, yourself, your other people. And just, I think people just should just be matter of fact on a lot of things. Like you can talk about all these different things, but so, you know, like, what do you want to do? Like think through what do you want to do? Like, what do I want to do? I want I wanted to play in the, I wanted to be a big league player. I didn't do that because I, I didn't do the things I needed to do to do that. I want I wanted to go to college to play football. So I was like, I'm doing that. Like just. Whatever you, you have your goals are, your worthwhile goals of whatever you want to do, like set your goal, set your big goal, and then be matter of fact on what you need to do to get there. Get rid of all the drama. I think it's important to keep in mind, too, to set those goals, but the real gift is in working to get there. So whether or not you become a big league player, that's not really the story at the end of the day. It's the steps you took to get there. So if you never made it to the NFL, the story is about the steps you took. It's grinding, living on different people's couches. It's working out. It's sending out tapes. And whether or not you actually make the NFL is somewhat outside of your control. But the story is that journey. It really is. You know, yeah, because you're going to have to have that journey to get to what your big goal is. So because you're going to have to do that journey, 
you might as well enjoy it. You're building that person that you're talking about in your boys. That's what you're, and which is the real goal is building that individual that you can be proud of that's accountable. And the outside success, the millions of dollars, the NFL, the running a company, those are superficial. What you're really doing is you're building a person that you can be proud of, a good father, a good brother, a good human being. The end of the day, even if I didn't do all that things, I would still be happy with myself. You know, if I went to Rice College and I didn't play in the NFL, but I did everything I could, I'd be happy with myself because I knew I did everything I could. And I was a a good person. I didn't do bad things to people. And I was accountable. So you, at the end of the day, if you're trying to be successful or whatever everybody's definition of success is, but if you're not happy with yourself, I mean, it's going to be hard to consider yourself a successful person. If you're not happy with who you are and what you do and what kind of person you are. Well, Bud, you've got a powerful story, and I can't thank you enough for sharing it, man. I hope you'll continue to share it with others one-on-one, however you do it, because it's uh, it's important for sure. And thanks for sharing it to me, and thank you for being here, man. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.